Trust that that was encouraging to you. Yes, uh, go ahead and be seated. My name is Paul. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I'm so glad that you guys are here with us today. And we're kicking off a new series called I Am In. And we're going to go through a couple of different things that we are in on over the course of the next few weeks. But one of them, I think this first one touches pretty close to the heart. And I know this because I felt it. I know this because I've seen it in so many different places. And you've probably experienced something like this. You do something that's fun, something that's a little bit out of the normal, and maybe you post about it on social media, and one of the first comments to come in is usually, well, where was my invitation? There's this thing of, it's like, you know, okay, I thought I could actually do something and I didn't have to invite everyone in the whole world. Like, you've probably felt that. Maybe you've even been guilty of that as well, where you see something like, oh, I would like to do that. Where was my invitation? And there's this thing of, we hate to feel left out. We, we as people, generally as a culture, we do not like to be discluded or unincluded from an event that's happening. And we've all felt it. There's been a party. There's been something that we wanted to be at, and we weren't there, and we felt that. And we've also felt the difficulty of the other side of, oh, I can't invite everyone, and someone's probably going to be mad, and we've had to deal with that. Because being invited, it's, just, it's one of those things that's close to our heart. We don't want to feel left out of a group that we want to be included on. And today is about an invitation that, that God gives us that, that's so important. And this might seem like a weird place to start for some of us that have been around the church for so long, but I want to tell you, so many people feel like when it comes to things about God or things, to, things about church, they just genuinely feel like they're not invited. They feel like they're not included, they're not welcome because of mistakes that were in their past, because of the background that they grew up in. For whatever reason, there's a general sense of, I'm not invited. And some of us, we feel halfway invited. Like, I, I can kind of be there, but I can't really be accepted or be known. And I want to tell you the truth, that, that you are invited, that I am invited, that each one of us. And the passage we look at today is going to really nail that home of who is invited. And so the first thing for today is, I am invited. And we'll put that up on the screen. And I want you to know that and soak that in that you were invited not to just be here in a church building or be watching online. You're invited to be part of a family. And I know that no matter what is in your past and whatever is in your history, I know that's true because of what we see Jesus doing and how he treated other people and how he brought them in. And Jesus takes the invitation just even further and Jesus invites the people that others reject. The people who are rejected by church people in the day of Christ, and the people even now who are rejected by church people, I'd say Jesus is inviting those people in. And if he's welcoming them in, and he's supposed to be the head of the church, he is supposed to be the example for all Christians, how could we look at his example and read his words and not let them affect our actions? How could we not let, that, let, not let his example affect our words? We have to be changed by what Jesus did and how he lived. And so we're going to look at his example today from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. We're going to start at verse 36, and we'll put these words up on the screen as I read them. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume 
on them. Now, first of all, a Pharisee party isn't quite like the party that you might think of when you think about what a party would be in your head. There, there was no loud bass-driven music. There was probably not any dancing, probably not even much laughter, but there was lots of discussion. And in fact, you might compare it to like a TED Talk or a roundtable discussion about philosophies and theologies and life and law. That's more what their parties would be like. And in fact, it was customary when they'd have these kind of dinners, they would eat and they would move to an outer room that, that had a patio next to it so that the common people could come sit on the patio and just kind of eavesdrop and, and grab some of their knowledge as they spoke. Because there was no YouTube to go learn from, and so you went and you sat before people and listened to them debate and talk and learn. And that's what would happen at these parties when these rulers from the Pharisees got together to debate and discuss the law. And especially as Jesus was there, this was a big deal, and so people would have been there listening. So even as we read this passage, understand it's not just the people who are directly in the room who are taking this in. They understand that there's a broader audience that's listening to what's happening and being said. There's a bit of a public atmosphere here at this private party because of the way that their culture operated in this day. And so as we get into this passage, one of the first things you'll see is a Pharisee. If you're not familiar with a Pharisee, is they were a religious ruler. They had the authority. They helped interpret the law and apply it to other people, often unequally. They were pretty specific about the regulations. They would measure out when they were supposed to give a tenth of something that grew, grew they would measure it out to the ounce. They wanted to follow all the rules, but they weren't really concerned about compassion. And that's something that Jesus criticized them for, criticized them for often. There was times where Jesus referred to the Pharisees as a brood of vipers, which is not an affectionate term, by the way. I mean, Jesus would be rough on these guys because they thought that they had it all together. And those were the type of people that Jesus corrected the most harshly. And I bring that up to say that just to, to take notice, a Pharisee invited Jesus over for dinner and Jesus accepted the, the invitation. He went. And, and I think sometimes in our culture, maybe we have the capacity to show grace to someone who has made major mistakes and, we, and they're more of a mess than we are. Sometimes it's harder for us to show grace to someone who thinks they have it all together but still needs some grace from us. And I'd say that Jesus is a good example of this. He, he corrects, but he also is willing to engage. And as he's invited over to a Pharisee's house, he says, yeah, I'll go. And then as he's there and he's eating and he's spending time with them and they're discussing whatever they were discussing that night, it all got interrupted when a certain immoral woman joined the party. Now, this is, uh, there, there's times in the New Testament, the way that things are described, they're described kind of... Uh, Politically correct, I guess. And as we're, I'm going to show you another passage where it, the Bible, the way it's translated into English, makes it a lot easier to read in front of other people in church, where in the original language, in the Hebrew, it's a little bit uncomfortable to talk about what they're saying. But especially in this, when it says a certain immoral woman and then describes the possession that she has, an alabaster jar of perfume that was worth about a year's wage. So we're going to just, you know, use Cape Coral terms. Average income for Cape Coral is about $60,000. So she's walking in, spilling out a $60,000 bottle of perfume. Women weren't really known to have much wealth in this day. She was an immoral woman. You can put two and two together and figure out what her occupation was, which is why the Pharisees probably, probably reacted so negatively to her being there because they were rule followers. If they saw someone who was unclean the way that she was, they would move to the other side of the road to stay away from her because they were going to be completely separate. 
And so we see this woman interrupting their dinner and knowing that there's other people listening and now she is weeping and crying and washing Jesus' feet with her hair and touching his feet. It means her hair is out. It's not covered the way they would expect a woman's hair to be covered in that day. And I want you to know, like, the tension in the room was thick. You could cut it with a knife. People were uncomfortable. But Jesus seemed pretty okay with what was happening as her tears fell and she wiped them and she was kissing his feet and putting perfume on them, it, it makes you question what would drive a woman like her to enter into that room? I mean, you have to, you have to somewhat speculate, and we can't say with absolute definity that this is what happened, but most likely what happened in the day or days leading up to this event, she had sat and listened to Jesus teach. Because it's obvious something had already happened in her heart. She went home, and she got the perfume, and she came to the place where she had heard that Jesus would be. And her heart and her life was so changed that she brought this perfume that was worth a year's wage and she's pouring it out on his feet. Now listen, that perfume wasn't just expensive. It wasn't just worth a year's salary, but it was part of her occupation because as men smelled that and it was rare for a woman to have perfume in this day, they would understand she's available for sale. Like as they walked by. So as she did this, I want you to understand where her heart was at. She was coming and she was worshiping Jesus in this incredibly passionate manner. But she was also pouring out the life that she had been living in a way that she couldn't go back to it easily. I mean, it was an, it was an expensive act of worship in the fact that it was worth money, but it was also expensive in the fact that she was saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. And that's what's implied in the passage. And as it got poured out, I, I want you to understand the risk that she was taking. Because first of all, for a woman to get into that line of work, it's not something that young women aspire to. It wasn't a dream that was set on her heart from childhood days. And in fact, when you think of how does a woman get pushed to that point, usually in this time, tragedy could happen. As a young woman, her parents could have died. And she could have been pushed into it from need. She could have been pushed into it from abuse. Someone could have forced her to do it to earn them money. She could have gotten pregnant at a young age, and because of that, being unmarried gets pushed out of the synagogue, gets labeled as someone who cannot be trusted to be hired, and therefore it's the only work option that she has. And because she got labeled like that by the church people, you could imagine how hard it would be for her to be around church people. And in fact, any of those categories that would push a woman into that line of work are all things that you would look at and you would say, this person would be saying, why God did you let this happen? Why did you let my parents pass away? Why did you let this person abuse me? Why did you let me get pregnant like this? All of those things are things that would push someone to probably be angry at God. And so I just think that's interesting to think about and note as you enter this, where she is coming before Jesus, where she is praising God, where, where she is worshiping in a passionate way that's putting her, her future because that, that's how she made money. What's she gonna do now? Well, you know what? Her heart isn't too concerned about where things are going to come from later, but she knows that this is what she needs to do now. And I wonder how often in our life with God that we felt him move in our heart about doing something that had cost to it, 
that we just we trusted God enough to say, I don't care what the cost will be. I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm going to worship how I should worship now. I'm going to give how I should give now. I'm going to serve the way that I should serve now. If I'm supposed to go out on mission, I'm going to go out on mission now. It doesn't matter about the things that I was planning to do or how I always got by. I'm going to honor God in the now and he'll take care of the later. Because what she was doing, it was dangerous to her future. It was socially dangerous because those people, they didn't even want to look at her as she entered that room. I mean, later in the passage, we're going to see Jesus actually tells them, look at her. Because it seems like they were just trying to like ignore that that was even happening. They didn't want to see her. It's, that's the depth of judgment that they had against her. In verse 39, the passage continues and says, when the Pharisee who had invited him, Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know the kind of woman who's touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Like, look at this. He was thinking that in his head, and then Jesus spoke to what was going on in his head. That will put you in your place real quick when you start to question God, when he starts answering things that you're just thinking about. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. <laughs> Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. I don't know if you're a follower of Christ and maybe you, you have felt this before too. It's like you start to write that social media post and it's kind of like Jesus whispers to you, I have something to say to you before you say that. <laughs> um, it, it seems like that's what was happening. Like he's like, I see what you're thinking. I see where this is going and I've got something to say to you. And it, it's one thing to, to feel a push from God about saying, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't be in this situation. You shouldn't be speaking that. You shouldn't be thinking about that. It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to allow your perspective to be changed. One of those has value. One of them really doesn't for the future of your life. If you hear the voice of God, but you ignore it, it is not beneficial to you. But to hear God say, here's what you're thinking about and here's how it needs to be adjusted and adjust your life, adjust your habit, adjust what you're doing, that's where the value is found. Don't get caught up in the entertaining act of hearing God's voice. God desires us to follow his voice. So Jesus begins to speak to the Pharisee's perspective, and he says, I want, I want to teach you something. And in verse 41, Jesus told him this story. A man, lo a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right. Who loved him more? The one who had the larger debt. Now, Jesus is trying to teach him something, but man, there is plenty of room for the Pharisees to get upset about the way that Jesus chose to teach it because what Jesus just implied was that this woman of the night over here loves God more than you love God. Like there's plenty of room for them to get offended by the way that Jesus did this because he's saying the one who's been forgiven more loves more. And this is an issue that I think we can still run into because we see someone who comes through the church doors or we see someone in our workplace or in the city and they obviously have an addiction or they obviously have a problem or, or their marriage is breaking apart or they've made bad life choices and we look at them and we say, man, I'm glad that I'm just so much better off than they are. I'm glad I have it more together. I'm glad that I don't have as much sin in my life as them. And I want to tell you that God's view of your sinfulness, of your debt to him, 
and their debt to them, to him, is one and the same. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, that our good deeds, they don't amount to much before God. And, and I think often when we've been around the church for a while, we lose the emotional feeling and the mental realization of how significant it is that we've been forgiven. We've forgotten about the debt and how the weight was removed when we allowed God to extend forgiveness to us. I mean, when it comes to debt, most of us still know what it feels like to be in debt pretty well. I mean, the government has made sure that we're, we feel in debt because each one of us owes $70,000 on the government's behalf. That's the national debt divided per person throughout our country. There's that aspect of it. But then the average American has $6,000 in credit card debt, has $30,000 in automobile debt, and $45,000 in education debt. And that's just the average. And I know many of us are just above average in all things that we do. But if, if you can grab the emotion of how significant would it feel if all of the debts that I owed, someone just wrote a check and paid for. I mean, it's like I could live in that moment for just a minute of, oh my goodness, all the debt is gone. And we can imagine how happy that we would be. But I need you to, to understand the reality that what God has forgiven us is bigger than that. And there was a time where you felt that to your core when you started walking with Christ. And many of us over time and years can forget the weight that was removed. And I want to remind you of it. Because when we start to do better at things and, and our sin looks different than what it used to, it's not that sin is gone, it just looks different now. And we think that we have some good works where, where we're better than someone else. We really get a twisted perspective and this is what I meant earlier, like in Isaiah 64, 6, it's a common passage that says, all of our good works like filthy rags before him. That is a very sanitized passage. And um, to, to give you the better, like more accurate what's there in the Hebrew, it says all of our good works, your best things that you've ever done, the most noble things you ever did are like used tampons before God. Like, that's literally what it means in the Hebrew. And that's not something that we really, that's not terminology we like to use in church from the pulpit. Like, I get that. But I want you to see the severity that Scripture uses to describe our best works before God. They are not good enough. Our relationship with God is not on a basis of our merit. It's on a basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He took our place. He paid our penalty. He lived a life and earned something that we could never earn so that we could receive what he earned. When he died on the cross, he was paying our debt. When he rose from the grave, he gave us an invitation to join him in resurrection because of what he's done, not because of what we've done. And so when we say our good works aren't enough, scripturally, that's why we say that. When we have someone come in who their life is a mess right now. They, they are on their way into rehab because they're not even far enough to be out of rehab yet. And we say, you're no better than me. This is why we say that, because it's true, because this is how God sees us. We have been given this incredible amount of grace. And sometimes, unfortunately, we look at our debt and we say, my debt is just small compared to most people, and it affects our passion. But when we remind ourselves, my debt is significant. My best works are never enough. 
And the reason that I have a relationship with my heavenly father is because he just has grace upon grace for me. And that changes the way that we act. It changes the way that we worship. It definitely should be changing the way that we treat other people in our city. But I think we fall into things of just our normal motions and normal goings, coming ins and coming out, and we miss opportunities to honor God in the way that we're living. In verse 44, as Jesus just gave the parable of the one who's been forgiven much, the one who's been forgiven little, in verse 44 he continues, and then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, now listen to this, he had to say to Simon, look at this woman. Like he had to call his attention down to where she was. Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. And that made them get even more upset when he starts talking that way, when he starts talking about forgiving someone's sins. Her sins, though there are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who has forgiven little shows only a little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Now look, we have the religious ruler, the guy who knows the rules, he knows, how, he knows the regulations, he's seen as important within the synagogue and the places of worship. And Jesus says, this is how you've treated me without much thought or courtesy. And then this woman who is known as the immoral woman has, has treated him with such affection and love. And he says, which one of you are doing better? And for us, we look at that and we say, whose passions do we want to emulate? And this is, I think this this passage, it teaches us something about identity. It teaches us something about the way that God looks at us, that, that no matter how many mistakes have been in our past, no matter what abuses, whatever bad decisions have been there, God still looks at you and he draws you in. But it also should most definitely be changing the way that we treat other people. When someone has been difficult, we should still extend grace and forgiveness and love to them. When someone has been hard to get along with, we should not easily give up on someone. This kind of grace, it's, it was challenging. It was impossible for, for the Pharisees to, to get a hold of. They didn't even want to look at that woman. But within the church of America today, I, I want to be clear that we are to extend grace and we are, are to speak truth. And those two things do go hand in hand. And in fact, it is not filled with, it is not graceful. It is not loving to, to abstain from telling someone what is true. It's not that we avoid sin because Jesus called it sin. Though her sins are many, he did not ignore that. And in fact, Jesus did what he came to do. He dealt with sin. So the sin is there, but I will forgive sin. And the life change, I'd say, was evidently within her as well, that she was pouring that perfume out, that that she wasn't going back to that. 
And that's what we should expect to see. That when the grace of God flows through the church, we will see lives turn around. We will see futures changed. We will see hearts that are passionately worshiping, not worrying about the cost because they just so clearly see who their heavenly father is. Because the love that they've seen on display in the person of Jesus Christ. And that kind of gets back to it, of that, that question, what was it that Jesus said that, that so changed this woman's life? What was it that she felt and heard from Jesus that brought her to this day? And I can't definitively tell you what it is because it, Scripture doesn't, doesn't pinpoint it and say that she was there. It could have been something that was not recorded in the Gospels. But if we, we rewind to the day before this, when John the Baptist's disciples were sent to him while John was in prison and Jesus was speaking and teaching there, the message that was happening the day before is a common one. It's a common passage that you'll know. But I want you to listen to it through the, through the eyes and the heart of someone who has been abused in the way that she was, who carried heavy baggage the way that she did. What, what Jesus was teaching the day before, and this was from the parallel passage in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, And Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary, and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. And whether it was specifically that day or Jesus teaching in a different way, that same truth that he taught over and over, I think it's safe to say that the burden that she felt that she carried, when she heard Jesus, that burden was removed. So that guilt that she had, the stain that she felt like was on her, that she felt like that was removed to the point where she came and she poured the perfume out. She cried at his feet. She worshiped. She rejoiced. She didn't care what the Pharisees thought. She didn't care what the other people in the room thought. She felt free. She felt whole. And she heard from the lips of Jesus herself that you're forgiven, that you're part of this now that you do belong. After years of hearing that you don't, that you're not welcome, there's a sense that she realized, I think, that, that she was in this family of God now. And if you guys will make your way up, I'm going to begin to close this, this message out. In her life, she surely experienced shame. She surely experienced judgment. She surely experienced being made to feel like she was worth less than anyone else. But when she was around the teachings of Jesus Christ, it changed her heart in a way that she felt like she could walk into that room full of church people that had always judged her. It changed her heart in a way that said, I'm going to pour this perfume out, though it costs, though it's my future. I'm going to pour it out in worship. what I so much want for each one of you listening today is I want you to feel and know that you have been invited into the family of God. That whatever is in your past, whether it be your choices and your mistakes or someone else's choices that caused abuse and hurt in your life, that God has not forgotten about you, God has not left you, but God calls out to you and invites you back in. 
no matter what anyone else has said about you, he invites you back in. He loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross to pay for your sins so that whoever believes will not perish but will have eternal life. Life that starts now. Life that is abundant. Life that feels healed and whole. And it starts at the response to Jesus' invitation. That's a response that only you can choose to make. And so you will hear it. You will hear the voice of God at points in your life and he will call you in and you will choose to either ignore him or you will choose to respond. And the response doesn't take much. It just takes, God, I'm ready. Father, we receive your forgiveness. We confess that we have sinned, that we've fallen short, and we need the new life that only comes from you. And we desire to feel that grace, but we also desire to extend that grace to others who need it. And so, Father, empower us to be a church and a group and a family that carries grace everywhere that we go. May no one be made to feel uninvited, but may we all realize that we are invited into your family as heirs with Christ, children of God, adopted, called beloved by our Heavenly Father. We praise you for this in Jesus' name.